What's up, everyone? Hope you're all having a wonderful day. I'm coming to you from Topanga Canyon, where I've been stationed for the last month getting ready for the Motherfucker Awards. It is a comedy show that I am producing with my buddy Chris Ryan, where we celebrate the companies that have done the most to fuck Mother Earth. And we're getting all these comedians to represent the corporations. Uh, We got Natasha Legero, Moshe Kasher, Simon Rex, the Yes Men, a bunch of journalists like Matt Taibbi and Abby Martin, uh, Captain Paul Watson, Ron Finley, and more. Uh, So you can get the tickets at themotherfuckerawards.com. I'll put a link below my profile. This episode is with Mira Finkelstein. Um, This was an episode that was uh, recommended by one of you. You reached out um, and emailed info at kyle.surf and um, said, hey, you should interview this woman. She's a um, she works up at UCSE, which made it easy for me because I spend part of my time up in Santa Cruz. She came over and we had a great chat. Uh, Mira is a wildlife toxicologist who studies the link between lead and condors. Um, And she's had a a wild life and we get into it. Um, She's a very smart woman and I enjoyed speaking with her. She also corrected me a few times. Uh, I misspoke when I said that I that. Captain Paul Watson discovered the the gyre. He did not. That was Charles Moore. And uh, thankfully, she knew what she was talking about, and I didn't. So she slapped me down, and I appreciate it when you all do that as well. And you're like, hey, Kyle, uh, I think you misspoke there. I try and do that as infrequently as possible, but this is an unedited conversation, and it happens from time to time. And whenever I do get called out, I will talk about it in a future episode um, and try and make amends. So we do our best, don't we? Um, The waves are going to get really good this upcoming week, and I am going to stay put, um, probably just surf some spots around here, even though I think Mavericks is going to get really good. um, I'm committed to this show. It's on December 4th, and I know that if I jammed out back up to Santa Cruz, to get a day up at Mavericks, I would be exhausted. Um, and I want to give this my, my best shot, you know? Uh, I don't want to have any excuses. And there will be more swells. That's what I'm telling myself. But I hope that you all can get some time off work this upcoming week um, and surf because it looks like they're going to run the Jaws swell on Monday. And... That swell is headed straight for California after that. So um, get out there, get wet, enjoy yourself. Finally, this is an ad-free podcast. So if you can donate on Patreon, I would really appreciate it. Uh, You can click the link below the profile um, or on my website, kyle.surf. That's a good place where you can get in touch with me, leave comments about the show, under the episodes, whatever. Even just a few bucks a month, the equivalent of a cup of coffee helps keep this thing going. And uh, I really appreciate all of you who donate. Um, I know that times are tough and every dollar really does help me prioritize this show and bring these episodes to you every single week. Um, So no pressure. If not, just share the episode with a friend. Keep listening. Give it a rating on iTunes. That's a huge help because it... um, it bumps the rating up. It bumps my show up uh, and allows other people to find it. So just a 30 second review really does help. And with that, I'm going to stop talking. So I hope that you enjoy this episode with Mira Finkelstein. (laughs) 
Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. I want to hear about the work that you're doing uh, right now with the California Condor. Okay. So I started working on California condors and the sources and effects of lead poisoning condors about eight years ago now. And I'm collaborating with my old major advisor, one of my major professors, um, Don Smith, at UC Santa Cruz. And we're basically been doing research to understand the sources and the effects of lead poisoning in California condors. How does it work? So we're environmental toxicologists, and we've been able to, over the years, because we've been working on this a long time, we've been able to demonstrate that condors are poisoned to lead much more frequently and at much higher levels than we had previously thought, because pe people would use blood lead monitoring data but that is not it's an imprecise sorry it's an imprecise way to um, understand their exposure history so we've developed techniques to use feathers we've also from stable lead isotopic fingerprinting which is I'll try not to get too complicated that's, here that's a big sentence for I me. know I know so lead lead is really interesting lead has a signature that doesn't change so if, which you wouldn't want to do, you ate a lead bullet, then the signature of the lead in the lead bullet would just look just like the signature of the lead in your blood after eating it, you know, basically poisoned you. And so from that, this is a technique that's used over the years to understand sources of lead poisoning to children, where, you know, you could go in and a child would, you know, basically be presented with lead poisoning and a team would go in and take dirt from the child's front yard or paint from the child's windowsill and from that identify what was the lead, what was the source of lead to the child. So we use the same technique to understand this um, and help identify the source of the lead to the condors. So do you put that under like a paint ship under a microscope and the child's blood under a microscope? How do you yeah. see that for the, the non-science oh, people like me? That, yeah. So what you do is you take the paint and you leach it and get a little bit of the lead out of the paint and you take the child's blood or for my case, the condor's blood, and you digest it, so you basically immobilize all the lead in the blood, and you do some other things to prep it, and then you run it on this instrument that's highly sophisticated and very expensive, and it basically tells us how much of each of these kind of signatures of lead, because lead has different isotopes. So it's not just lead, but it's actually there's four kinds of lead we can measure out there, and so it tells us how much of these different kinds of lead, and it creates a profile. So we can have a profile of lead in the blood of the condor and a profile of lead in the paint or, in the case of condors, in the bullets. And we can actually do a match. So I heard a lot about lead over the last couple of years with the Flint, Michigan lead yes, poisoning. Right. But I don't actually know what lead does to us other than that yes. it is bad and it used to be in our paint and 
gasoline Pe- yeah gasoline yeah. How, how does it interact with our bodies why is why yes. is the story like flint michigan and lead being um in their water why is that oh. dangerous for us and to me that's just oh so tragic the flint story yeah because we know now that there is no acceptable level of lead exposure for a young child without long-term detrimental impairment. So all of those kids that have gotten elevated levels of lead or lead poison from that water, I'm just, I'm very sad for them because it's most probably they're going to have long-term neurological impairment from that exposure. What can happen? So there's been shown to have reduced IQ is one of the things, but lead can cause lots of problems to multiple physiological systems. So for example, lead's been known to disrupt the nervous system. So that's where you can get IQ impairment. Lead has been known to disrupt the reproductive system, the immune system, the blood system so it reduces blood formation and it's it's just it's just not a good it's not, <laughs> not a, a good yeah, thing you don't and want the, it. the fact that and now, it stays in your system as well it, well it doesn't necessarily stay so lead isn't like some other things that we think about where it accumulates in your body over time it does it looks like calcium a little bit so it'll accumulate in your bones Um, But if, for example, you were lead poisoned, let's say you ate that bullet two months ago, your blood lead would have gone way up right after you ate it, and then it would go down again. And so two months later, maybe your blood lead's not that elevated anymore. But the damage that the lead did when your blood lead was elevated to your physiological systems, like different nerve tissue or your, you know, nervous system, so different kinds of, or enzymes, that's been done. And some of it is basically irreversible wow and lead used to be in our paint is that correct yes and still there's many houses that still have lead paint on them today in different houses that were painted you know with lead-based paint in the 60s and then maybe repainted so it's something that people should still be careful about because we can uh ingest the lead through breathing the breathing of the paint is that correct if you sand it then yes you can ingest it but so for children you know if they eat a little bit of a paint chip let's say you have an old house that was painted and then repainted but you have peeling paint and if a child ate a little piece of that paint chip they could get lead poisoning from that wow and uh do you know much about the story of of when it was made illegal i think that it's a i'm i'm asking you so i don't know a, a ton about it but it's it seems like a good example of environmental regulation working where you like we have a lot of products on the shelf now that that are dangerous mm-hmm. and lead seems like one of one of the products that was at, at the top of the list where science came together and, and said look this is what it does we need to figure this out very quickly well Unfortunately, it wasn't quite like that because industry was invested, you know, in maybe not making that change. And I think a good example is for lead and gasoline. And Patterson, who was a um, scientist who helped to um, understand the effects of lead in children and saw these big increases from lead and gas. And I don't know, I should remember the story correctly. Um, But basically, it almost pretty much ruined his career because of just the um, pushback that he got from industry, even though he was, it was amazing all of the work that he did to show that everybody's blood lead levels were so much higher because of the use of leaded gasoline. The industry didn't want to take lead out of gasoline. And 
basically, you know, pretty much derailed his entire career. Wow. Is lead still in gasoline? Not in cars, but they still use it in certain jet fuels. Wow. And when, who is this guy? Patterson? Yeah, I need to look. I should probably, I should look. It's okay. We don't need to go deep into it. That's fascinating, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just watched a documentary called Merchants of Doubt. Have Mm -hmm. you seen that? Mm Mm-hmm. So no, I haven't. It's, it's really it's really well done. It's all about how uh, industry will hire PR firms um, n- not to disprove the science that one of their products is dangerous, but just to create enough doubt around the issue mm-hmm. that it still feels like the jury is out. Um, so they take it through yeah. uh, issue by issue. One of the big ones was um, fire retardants yeah. um, in couches and, mm-hmm. and home products that were um, that had dangerous chemicals in it. Do you know much about that? Yes, I've actually measured flame retardant chemicals in condor blood. Really? Yes. How does that work? Well, it's you know sort of a similar thing. You can take a blood sample and you we split it and get a bit of the blood which we call plasma, and we run it for different different kinds of contaminants, and we ran it for flame retardants and also for other sort of contaminants that we call persistent organic pollutants and looked at the level of these pollutants in the condors. Wow. And what do flame retardants do? So they can do different kinds of things. They can, um, over time, cause, you know, similar to many different contaminants, they can mess up systems and how they work. They can mess up how your hormones work. They can mess up how your immune system works. They can sort of just get in there and interact with things in a way that they're not supposed to. And potentially they can cause cancer and other things like that. Okay. Um, So with the California condor... um, were the condors eating dead carcasses of other animals that had been shot by hunters that were using lead-based bullets, and that's how it was entering into the condors system? Yes, although not just hunters. So it's important to know that this is not um, necessarily hunters that are responsible. So if anybody shoots anything, you know, like a coyote or a pig or a ground squirrel with lead-based ammunition and leaves that carcass on the ground, any scavenging species eating that can potentially be lead poisoned and die from that exposure. And so, you know, we're seeing, um, uh, condors get poisoned from things that we're pretty sure were ground squirrels and things like that. So it's, I think it's important to st- step back and be anybody using lead-based ammunition, ammunition for controlling any type of animal right. out there can potentially poison a scavenging species. Right. And for people who don't know, uh, ranchers will shoot ground, ground squirrels because they'll create holes in, in the ground that can... Um, it can make their cattle fall into it, break their ankle, that kind of thing. So they're well, a, a nuisance around ranches. Yeah, and they do it for sport as well. You know, right. there's places in Wyoming where people will go to colonies and just shoot a bunch of ground squirrels. And there's golden eagles that nest like along the ridge of some of these ground squirrel shooting kind of events. And they'll, you know, go in and pick off the ground squirrels and become lead poisoned. So are most bullets still made with lead? I. I I don't know what the proportion is. I do know that, you know, there's a large amount of ammunition that's still made with lead, although there's more and more non-lead alternatives, you know, coming out all the time. And that my understanding is, is that pretty much um, the majority of types of ammunition you can buy now, you can buy in sort of a non-lead alternative. That's good. I I found... um 
so I bow hunt mm-hmm. and um, have found that a lot of, of bow hunters are very conservation minded and very much love the outdoors, love um, learning about mm-hmm. species interaction, uh, interaction. Right. and I'm sure, and like you can't, there's definitely still the, the idiot hunters who just don't give a shit, but I found that most people who I've talked to, most people who I've hunted with um, are very much open to, to learning about this kind of stuff and, and probably would be open to learning about non-lead alternatives. Have you found that to be true within the hunting community? Yeah, no, so I... Um because I do research and I supply it to lots of different organizations. And there are some great groups out there that um, there's a website called huntingwithnonlead.org. And that's run by hunters for hunters. And there's hunters that work in association with us that basically talk about the different types of non-lead alternatives there are. And so there's a large group of hunters out there that are promoting the use of non-lead for wildlife health, but also for human health. So if you remember that there's no level of lead exposure that's acceptable for a young child, you know, known to be without long-term effects. And there's many studies that have shown that if you eat meat that have been shot with lead-based ammunition, you will get a elevated blood lead a little bit because you could eat a very, very small fragment of lead. And we'll back up to saying that lead because lead kind of fragments into all these tiny, tiny little pieces. So even if you clean the wound channel, you'll still have little bits of lead fragment throughout the carcass. There are um, radiographs you can see online that show this sort of snow storm effect. Wow. And... Um, so there's been studies that have shown that humans that eat meat that have been shot with lead-based ammunition have this sort of elevated, get this elevated blood lead. And again, if you don't want that for your family or your young child, you should probably not be shooting with lead-based ammunition. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, zoom in. That's, that's so fascinating. When did you um, start uh, working with condors? Yeah, so in about eight years ago, we're gonna kind of yeah. we're gonna, we're gonna do a very memento based yeah. interview where we're gonna talk about yeah. this. Then I want to get all the way back to your work with Sea Shepherd and okay. that kind of thing as well. But just to round out this aspect mm-hmm. of it, yeah, how did you learn about this? When did when did it start? So I did my PhD on albatross, and this is how it started really. And I one of the um, studies I did was understanding the source of lead poisoning to lay sand albatross chicks on Midway Island. Okay. Because what does an albatross look like for people who haven't seen them? Huge bird. It looks like a gull, but much bigger. Can I be a little biased? Sure. Maybe just a little bit more elegant. Uh, A little more majestic than. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I hate seagulls. (laughs) Being a surfer growing up in town. And so lace and albatross, North Pacific albatross. I worked on both lace and and blackfooted and they breed on Midway. And Midway um, is an old military base and had been painted with lead-based paint when the military were there. All these buildings, about 90 of them. Yeah, in the northwestern in the Hawaiian northwestern. islands. Yeah. Do humans live there? No, people are there. So there's people that are there. They run an, uh, an emergency runway there. So uh, basically, because there's fl- planes that cannot fly from the U.S. to, you know, over there to Japan unless they have Midway because of, I guess, the size of its engine or something. So they operate as an emergency runway, and it's also a fish and wildlife refuge. And so there's a lot of um, uh, tons of different kinds of wild species that breed there. It's monk seals breed there and sea turtles and, like, you know, millions of birds are there. 
it's amazing right and i'm sure it's good uh place to do science because it's unimpacted by human populations I mean, it's impacted in the way yeah. that our products have have come <laughs> well, in there, but it's not the same as like doing science on Oahu, where I, I'm. Oh, correct, because there's let, not. Yeah, let, let me t- turn these statements into questions because I actually okay. don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for letting me switch that a little bit. Okay, continue. Oh, okay. So, well, well, so since Midway was a military base, and it's where the famous Battle of Midway took place, um, that island has actually been really altered by human activity over the years. And it's a huge runway strip and all kinds of buildings. Okay. And all these buildings that were built there were initially public, I mean, painted with lead-based paint. And so when the military Thank you for correcting out, me there. I always thought the Midway was, th- had, because I have a buddy who's, who yeah. does science out there, and mm-hmm it always seemed like there was nothing on there. So thank you for correcting me. Well, yeah. So the military had been there for quite a while. Right. And, um, and so when they left, uh, they uh, transferred ownership to Fish and Wildlife Service. And uh, the buildings remained, but the people stopped taking care of the buildings so much. A bunch of them were abandoned. And then all this paint that had lead-based paint started peeling. And the Lacey albatross in particular nest right around the building. So all these chicks were becoming poisoned with lead-based paint. And one of the things that lead does is it can cause paralysis of your peripheral kind of like appendages. So we, we call it peripheral neuropathy. And so these chicks would have something that we call droop wing. So they would basically, their chick rings would drag on the ground so you'd see this perfectly healthy looking chick you know who's getting its um, mature feathers in a big belly being fed every you know often by its parent and it's basically paralyzed its wings are like dragging on the ground and sometimes their wings would break and it was just it was horrendous it was like you know coming back to you know how you feel about animals I was just it was just heartbreaking it was heartbreaking and I remember I'll just say one day there was one that was very lead poisoned and um and was you know dying succumbing to the lead poisoning and it was laying on the ground and it couldn't even lift its head and its parents stayed there all day trying to coach it or trying to you know basically encourage it to eat and it was just Oh my God, it was very heartbreaking. So anyway, I wanted to do something about this. And I uh, called Don Smith, who is my advisor, who works on this lead fingerprinting, you know, or lead isotopic analysis to understand sources of lead. And I said, all these chicks, you know, are have, have this droop wing. I think it's lead poisoning. And I will kind of fast, kind of back up a little because there had been prior work that had been done that showed that these chicks were being poisoned by this lead-based paint and had already been published. And so as this naive scientist that I was in graduate school, I thought, that's already been published. I'm sure they've fixed that problem. But I go out there, and I had actually talked to the main author that had published that work, and he said, I think it's still a problem, and I will get back to condors in just a second. Um, Can you look for it for me? And I was like, how could it still be a problem? You published that great work, and it seemed so conclusive. And he said, I'm worried about it, you know, whatever. It was Dr. Terry work. I'll just grab it here. So when I went out there and I saw all these lead, you know, paralyzed chick, you know, these chicks with this droop wing, I thought, oh, my gosh, there's still lead poisoning. So we devised kind of a study out there where I took blood samples from them and from chicks not near the buildings, and I collected paint samples and soil samples, and I did this whole study. And I determined, yes, yeah, sure enough, they were lead poisoned and that they were lead poisoned by, you know, basically the paint chips that were found in their nest. And so concluding that the lead-based paint were poisoning these chicks and up to maybe 10,000 chicks a year. 
and it was and it wasn't enough me and that comes back to science so then we um you know, published that work and didn't get any traction to help clean up the paint because it was expensive and and because in albatross they have to live a very long time for the population health. Like they are, they've evolved to live a long time, and so uh, mortality of chicks isn't as important for long-term survival for the population as mortality of an adult. So when I would go to nonprofits and say, this is a problem, they said, we get it, but we're trying to put our money for albatross conservation into helping reduce bycatch from fisheries. So all these adults that are being killed by accident and fishing line. Oh, Because that was basically having a bigger impact on population growth. And I'm like, I get it. Because they need to get to a certain age to reproduce? Exactly. Okay. And not until late. And it's sort of the way that... It's like turtles, right? Kind of, yeah. So for long-lived species, species is that so do i have to redo everything no 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 you're fine you're fine so anyway um and i agree with them and so we did some science we wrote a paper that basically showed what was the benefit trade-off of um getting rid of the mortality of the chicks and how would that benefit the population taking into account that adults were still being killed and we showed that yes you know adult mortality was more important but if we fix the problem of the chicks, we could actually create a buffer. It would really help the population. It's, it's, it's a measurable benefit because we had, um, you know, people that worked for the government would say it's not, well, it's not really that big of a deal. It's just chicks. But go back to me watching those chicks dying on Midway and those parents, you know, basically cajoling. I just, you know, I couldn't live with that. So we demonstrated, you know, with, with, you know, through our research that it did have a measurable impact. And this was the impact. And then from that, um, we're able to help to generate more support. And eventually the Department of Interior actually designated us, you know, basically a Superfund site. And the funds then were allocated to clean it up. What's just, a Superfund site? So basically it's a site. Sounds super fun. Yeah, it's just, it's a contaminated site. And so it... Superfund is yeah, the worst word for what a superfund <laughs> is because it sounds so way too close fun. to superfund. Yeah, <laughs> so it's just a designated as a contaminated site because this is a problem with, I learned a lot with working on this project because it was a clear issue. We, we figured out, you know, the chicks were being poisoned. We demonstrated conclusive, you know, that, you know, it was coming from the paint. Everyone wanted to fix it up. Everyone wanted to clean the problem, but there wasn't the money. Because the buildings were derelict anyway, correct? Right, and some of them were actually, you couldn't even go in. And there was, but it was expensive. A lot of them had asbestos. You can't just like strip it. I mean, it was, it was not, you know, easy, although we knew how to do it. So in terms of a toxicologist, I thought, okay, there's the lead, there's a sick bird. You know, we can fix this problem, you know, versus, you know, plastic pollution or something that's just out there. And so initially we went to the military and said, well, you know, can you clean it up? I was with the American Bird Conservancy um, collaborating with them at the time. And we went to the military and they said, no, you know, it's not our problem. We transferred ownership to the Department of Interior, which didn't have the budget that the military did. So they also said, well, we care about this, but we're having a lot of problems on a lot of our refuges. And we can't, you know, it's hard for us. We don't have enough money kind of thing. So... Having then 
uh, it getting opened up and having the money come in from the Department of Interior was the best solution because it wasn't taking limited conservation dollars from these nonprofits who were working on, you know, basically reducing adult mortality at sea from bycatch and other issues. And it was actually being paid for by the people that generated the mess, which was the best use of funds. But it took almost 10 years working on that issue to get them, you know, to get that lead paint cleaned up. But did it get cleaned yeah, up? Yeah, so yeah. I think last no- year they like, got it all cleaned up. It was so two papers, meeting with the pe- military at the Pentagon, <laughs> lots and lots of different things. But you that's know. cool. Yeah, going so anyway. going back to islands, like it is cool when you can have those wins and oh and God. see it. I'm yeah. sure that's really gratifying for you as a scientist and having yeah. been in this work for a long time. Yeah, I was really excited. I mean, it was, I was really excited because it was such a fixable issue, you know, and it would, yeah, it was, I was very, very excited. And so, but I did that. And so when um, Don Smith, who I had worked with, with the lace and albatross and the lead, asked me if I wanted to come and start collaborating with him on this condor project, which was sort of similar in a way with lead poisoning and sources and effects. I was, I was really excited to do it. I said, yeah, I had heard about condors and lead and I was just finishing up a postdoc and I said, yeah. Had you lived in Santa Cruz already? Yeah, you went to school here. Is there? You went to, yeah. to UCSC when got, you were younger. Is that correct? Or? Well, I got my PhD at UCSC okay. in ocean sciences, working on problems like working on stuff such as this albatross-led issue I just talked about. And um, I married a surfer, <laughs> so stayed in Santa Cruz and have been um, working in different kind of um, positions within the university over time. And now I'm an associate adju- associate adjunct professor. Cool. And the main thing is working on condors. Well, that's one of my research projects. I also have a project working on lead poisoning in golden eagles, which is sort of similar to condors, but sort of basically we know a lot less about what's going on with golden eagles. And so more at a national level. So that's what I'm working on. Um, It's kind of a um, research that I'm just getting off the ground. Right. So what do you think the solution would be to an issue like lead poisoning in California condors and and golden golden eagles? You've worked in this this realm for a long time to like long enough to see how how science plays a role, activism plays a, a role, um messaging and general education plays a role. Um if you if you were god, you know, or if you had all of the funds in the world, what uh or even if you didn't, I guess the question would just be, what's the strategy to solve this problem? To not use lead-based ammunition. Simple it's a as very that. simple problem. Yeah, if you think it, it's a global problem, too. It's not just a U.S. problem. It's Canada. Wait, it's... there are other countries besides the U.S.? <laughs> <laughs> Forget about this. No, Wait. it's a global issue. If you think about basically shooting a tiny little piece of like toxic compound into a package that's, you know, that's basically other species are going to eat any other species it's it's a ubiquitous problem right. and it to me it's so fixable i think that's why i've really um stayed working on it because it's a very fixable issue right and and i don't see a downside to it i just can't i mean the research has shown that these non-lead alternatives are just as good they i think there's some issue with some of the costs but the costs are becoming you know more comparable they're becoming more available, and 
research has shown that, you know, in terms of the quality of lead and non-lead, if it's the same quality, the cost is actually the same. So I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't understand, uh, why we can't just fix this. Right. Who, do you know, uh, who the largest bullet manufacturers are? Oh, for lead? Yeah, for lead. I wonder that, I mean, it seems like it would, you would need to get them on board so that they, because hunters love being called environmentalists because it's, that's always the the argument back, right? Mm -hmm. Because like, well, we, our hunting licenses provide all of this conservation for land. So it feels Mm -hmm. like it would play into hunters identity. Yeah. I think that they're the problem, unfortunately now, like unlike the issue on Midway with the albatross, there was never any industry that was resistant to our work. You know, we um, published the work and everyone accepted the science and they said, we believe you, but we just don't have the money or we, you know, we need to prioritize other things. And, but for our work with condors, it's been um, not the case. So we've gotten a lot of resistance. I I testified before the California Senate, you know, when they were, um, basically uh, um, putting forth the legislation to prevent the use of lead-based ammunition for hunting in California. And I testified next to somebody who was affiliated with the National Rifle Association, who basically called my work junk science to the California senators. And um, which was nice because the California senator, one of the main person, um, pushed back on that and said that was an inappropriate thing to say in the committee hearing. But there um, has been a lot of, um, when you were talking about this kind of trying to sow this kind of, sow this, uh, sorry about that, sow this. Um, I guess identity, like you, if, to get the right uh, interest groups on board um, would be that one of the ways that you could go about it but yeah i i, I hear you industry yeah. is resistant i mean they didn't <laughs> car mm. companies didn't want to put seat belts in cars until they were right. forced to it's very slow yeah and i think that uh, i guess i'll just i just remember when we were uh, publishing some of our condor work demonstrating that lead-based ammunition was a principal source of lead poisoning to california condors and reporters would call and ask us to talk about it and so we would talk about it and then they would call somebody from the National Rifle Association to get their you know take on it and they would undoubtedly you know um, try to have some way to discredit our work even though we you know one of the papers we published was in one of the top three you know journals in the world and um, and then they said that they, uh, the national spokesperson at the time, if I'm remembering this quote correctly, from the National Rifle Association said, we are equating any restriction on the use of lead ammunition with the right to bear arms, and we are defending it as so. Oh, God. And I think to me that has been the problem, is that it's been this issue that it's like, if you're saying, hey, you know, do we want to save your kid? Do you want to, you know, save the eagles the condors the mountain lions that anything that's going to eat that thing that you just shot then switch over they're equating that with this like you know right to bear arms yeah, and freedom like you're trying to take sense. away our freedom right because i don't think they did that with equating like we're trying to take your car away or you can't have a house with pain anymore but for some reason it's gotten together and and it's really 
been an effective barrier for us to say, hey, no, we know a lot about lead. We know a lot about this issue. There are certain contaminants, granted, we don't know that much about. We're afraid that there's a big problem, but we don't know that much. But for this issue, we know a lot. You know, we the science is sound. And um, and so it's it's uh, it's un, it's. It's, uh, it's a barrier. It's a barrier. Yeah, it's a yeah. barrier. And it seems like messaging is, is important and more media yeah. and getting more people within the community right. to take ownership over it right. uh, was is important. I don't I've I don't I've never gone hunting with guns, but um, I'm not necessarily opposed to it with non based non lead based mm-hmm. uh uh, ammunition, but it seems like getting more people who are in that community to start talking about this and say, Hey, no, yeah. we, we love the outdoors and, right. uh, love species conservation and love healthy ecosystems. Right. I mean, it's just, it's so crazy to me that the environmental movement has been marginalized in any way because the environment is li- it's literally one of the only things that we all have a stake in. I know. Right? I, yeah. It's such, it's like just, yeah. if you were to really zoom out on this, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. we're got this little blue marble. We're suspended mm-hmm. in space, finite resources. What yeah. are we going to do here for, you know, 70 to a hundred years while we're here? It's, I, yeah. I mean, it just seems like it would make sense to leave the campsite a little bit nicer than when you found it. It would be. Yeah. Right. And I, I think it's, um, this kind of misinformation, you know, I, I, and so one of the first things that Zinke did, um, as the secretary of interior on, Ryan I Zinke. heard his yeah. Ryan Zinke, I heard his first thing, but, but maybe it was just one of the things he did on his first day when he rode that horse to office was he basically reversed the order from the previous secretary of the interior to, um, phase out the use of lead based ammunition on federal lands. And that was like his, one of his first actions and you're like why <laughs> you know why would you do that yeah you well, know i don't know but it's it's gotten so i guess my point for that is it's gotten traction as this kind of us them issue when it's basically healthy for all of us you know you do not want to feed your child you know a piece of elk meat that was shot with lead-based ammunition and many food banks will not accept game meat because of this because you're not you know i just it just makes no sense to me honestly yeah. some people are idiots too <laughs> yeah, there's enough i think there are enough rational people I, i'm saying this not you don't worry but uh i think there are enough rational people that these kinds of issues can move and you still run into people who uh, are so simple uh, so small-minded that they can't that they they just don't want to go there but I don't know. I'm still optimistic that I smart people listen to my podcast, so I get to engage with <laughs> with smart people all the time. But uh, yeah, that's that's a fascinating one. Um, let's go back now even further to your work uh, as an activist with Sea Shepherd. Um, I'm we're in touch with Captain Paul Watson for the motherfucker awards that we're doing. He seems like he's going to be great for that. Um, but uh, what was that like, and how did you get into it? Wow, okay, so hmm, how did I get into that? I went with a couple of friends and saw Paul give a talk at Berkeley, I think it was, um, about Sea Shepherd and his work and about 
this campaign they were doing to save wolves in British Columbia. And now I think I'm too close. And um, you're great. And he's a very inspiring speaker. Oh my God. If you ever get a chance to hear him speak, he's very inspiring. So my friends and I were inspired and we heard him and we're like, we're doing that. Like we are so doing that. And so we ended up um, joining Sea Shepherd at the time. We, we, um, they were going to do a campaign into the Bering Sea and the ship was in Seattle and we took off to the ship to help get it ready. And I think I was still in college, but I wasn't really going to classes. I can't remember exactly on the timing. And um, Paul had, at the time, had this, um, if I remember, they, you'd have to help pay to get on the ship and stuff, unless you'd be a cook. Right. And so we were cooks. So we had no idea what we were doing, but we were the cooks on this campaign to go to the Bering Sea to go after Japanese drift netters, which are, her, you know, kind of, which had been kind of banned as illegal, but were still being used. And they horrific, basically miles of net that killed everything in its path. I mean, just horrific, horrific um, nets that they put out there and catch everything. And so we were going against them. And, and only take some of the fish that they oh, catch. Oh, yeah, huge. Because there are only markets for certain certain uh, species, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. So, you know, fraction of maybe what they caught was kept and the rest was discarded. You know, dolphins, seabirds by the thousand, you know, whales, anything, sharks, turtle, whatever, you know, maybe not turtles in the North Pacific, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So, and so what does Sea Shepherd do to remind people? So when I, so Sea Shepherd is a, um, it's a it's a nonprofit organization and it's for um, ocean conservation. So some ships, I think they, I don't even know how many ships they have right now. But at the time we had one, the Divine Wind, uh, was the ship that Paul had bought, and um, it, we would go out there and basically try to bring attention to an issue such as these drift netters. So at the time, the drift netting had been deemed illegal, and my understanding was that there were um, international regulations against drift netting but countries were violating those regulations and still drift netting so we are going out there to basically help enforce these international regulations and to help stop this drift netting and call attention to the fact that it was still going on because this stuff is happening in the middle of the ocean and nobody's paying attention so sea shepherd was out there kind of on the front lines paying attention right that seems like it's an issue because uh because there can be laws put in place mm -hmm. but if no one is enforcing the law the laws because you're in the middle of the ocean no one's gonna they're not people aren't gonna follow it yeah and i think especially back then you know there was nobody was watching nobody knew what was happening you'd see these huge you know boats and then they'd have processing ships right out there in the middle of the ocean and no one knows what's going on and does this kind of activism work well i think it did help draw attention to the fact that it was still going on so you know the fact that um they weren't, you know, there, they had been these international rules and people had thought that, you know, maybe drift netting still wasn't happening. They're still, they call it illegal or pirate drift nets that still occur. But I think it does help. I guess I feel like it's a piece, it's a helpful part of the kind of moving forward. You've got to understand the problem, get attention to the problem, and then move forward to try to figure out how to fix the problem and um, find solutions, you know. Sure. And so on that sense, I think I, I think it did help. And I think that there's certainly a place for that. Um, 
I also feel then on the other side, you know, if you think about, okay, we know this is a problem, so what are we going to do about it or how are we going to fix it, that that's where you can generate science to find the best solution. So I kind of feel like there's a spectrum of things, of people that can help, and I always tell people, find where you want to help and do that. It's none, you know, I don't feel like there's one more important than the other. I think everybody working together and that going back to not being burned out and keeping your passion, that you've got to find what works for you. And even if it's just, you know, going every day and picking up trash on the sidewalk, that helps, you know, it all helps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to rewind a little bit, you, um, did I hear you correctly? And that you said that you, you initially got involved with, with Paul Watson's work because he was talking about wolf pulling in BC. Yeah. So Captain Paul Watson is also the guy who discovered the great Pacific garbage patch. Is that right? Well, I think Charles Moore might. Charles, sorry, <laughs> Charles Moore. Dar, dar. God, I freaking. But we did see a lot of plastic at sea, which is, I guess, to go yeah. back to why I went back to Charles study. Charles Moore did. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm that's just, okay. I'm I don't like know if fumbling through this entire interview <laughs> of my my false facts. Thank you for no, continuing okay. to. Well, I can. Charles Moore. That's what yeah. I was thinking of. Dirt. Captain Charles. Captain, Captain Charles Moore. Yeah. But um, so. I actually will just segue around, got into wanting to study environmental toxicology and marine pollution was what I kind of was interested in for my PhD because of the trash I saw when I was on Sea Shepherd. And I can tell the story that I tell, which is not in the North Pacific. So now fast forward like six years and now we're over in the Atlantic. We've been out to sea for days. I've now moved up in the ranks. So I'm now no longer a cook, but I'm a co-chief engineer which is as scary as it sounds because I had no training, but a bicycle mechanic was my other co-chief engineer. And that's what you did on Sea Shepherd. You just made it work. And so we were out there and I came up from the engine room off of my shift and it was a beautiful morning. And again, we had been, it was one of those days at sea. It was one of my favorite days because we hadn't seen land for days or another ship. So it was just us in the, you know, out there saving the, you know, animals that lived in the ocean. And I look up and the sea was just like glass, like a big bathtub for like horizon to horizon. It just was just like breathtaking. And all of a sudden we crossed across um, something that now I know because is a convergence zone where two basically bands of uh, ocean currents come together and converge. And there was this huge band of trash that we basically crossed right through. Just tons, like, you know, soda bottles, um, uh, those styrofoam coolers, bits of net, bits of plastic, just like trash. And we, like, flipped out, right? We're just flipping out. So we screamed to Paul. We're like, change course. And I, I just, so, okay. Change course. We start, instead of because we were crossing across the band, we started following the band for a while. And we're, like, frantically pulling up this trash. But it went seriously from horizon to horizon. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, what are, like, what are we doing? You know, and here's all the trash we can see. And what about all the contaminants we can't see that are in there? And I thought, oh, man. And so we followed for a while. And then Paul said, we got to switch back because, you know, we've got, you know, it's we're totally off course and we're heading down. We're working on um, at the time we were uh, uh, investigating uh, uh, tuna boats that were killing dolphins. And so we had to switch back. But I just, you know, the small pile of trash that we were able to pull up on the boat and just, you know, 
stretching miles in both directions. And I just, it just really struck me. So I thought, okay, I'm going back to school because my mom had been like every day, are you, what are you going to do with your life? Are you going to be on that boat forever? You know, I thought, well, I want to go back to school. I want to learn more about how to be effective in conservation. And I want to study environmental toxicology because I know nothing about it, but oh my gosh, what are we doing to the planet? Yeah, that's, that's one of those, uh, scope, ones where it like it's almost it's like saying picture seven billion people like the mind can't really like i can do it sort of but not really the trash one is that's another one for me just when you think about the sheer amount of trash that is going in like the mind can't really wrap around it but I, i think that you have a healthy perspective on uh tending to the part of the garden you can touch in a sense you know and the like you can kind of rein it back in and and do the work that that you know uh you know what you're focusing on an issue now that is very solvable you yeah. know rather than fraying yourself too much which i would imagine would be easy to do well i do have a little pro i do have a project that we're starting to initiate understanding the biological impacts of plastic ingestion we're collaborating with people that are working on that for seabirds because again if you work on um seabirds and you're on midway um that plastic trash issue is so prevalent and horrific so I do have that too it's something that I'm working on as part of my work but yeah cool well um I want to get one or two more stories out of you then we'll finish up here but um I want to know about your work in BC with the wolves okay so now we're going back farther so I took some time off uh, college, I kind of, it's like called a PELP where I took a leave of absence for a quarter. And so when we wanted to work on, um, doing something about this wolf kill, so British Columbia was basically instituting, had instituted a aerial wolf kill where they would go in with helicopters and well, they would bait frozen lakes and open areas with elk or other carcasses. Wolves would come in and they'd go in with helicopters and gun them down because they wanted to greatly reduce the wolf population in northern BC. Although this was something that some public interest groups up there wanted to do and the entire sort of, you know, um, British Columbia population wasn't that uh, aware of it or supportive. But this group up there, they had these operations where they were flying in like um, animals for hunting camps and operations. And so wolves were coming in and taking them. They didn't like that. And anyway... It, they were because big, the wolves would kill the moose, stone sheep, and caribou populations. Well, and also these kind of other animals that they were bringing in for these kind of hunting trips. So they were so the they were just and and it's sort of the story of you know our society is that anytime these top level predators are competing with our own you know, special interest, the top predator loses. And that was what was happening in these upper quadrants of British Columbia, even though the majority of the population wasn't that supportive of this, which we learned more about later. And so Paul had gone in on um, skis with some colleagues, you know, a couple years prior, or maybe a year prior, but a couple years prior. And they started this group that they called Friends of the Wolf. And they'd gone in with skis to try to disrupt this aerial wolf hunt basically put themselves in front of the hunters or you know guard the wolves or something but they didn't get very far on skis so then he had this idea that you should parachute in and basically get yourself right in there quicker because then it's you can get in there and then he looked at 
me and my two friends, and he thought, you guys would be great. <laughs> and so we thought, sure, we'll do that. And at the time, we thought he was going to be parachuting in with us, which eventually we learned he didn't. So we went to a local skydiving place. We were all at uh, UC Davis, and we learned how to skydive. And eventually, I think we got good enough to where they said we could bring press out because they thought we might survive. And so uh, we, you know, developed this wolf campaign called Friends of the Wolf and Patagonia donated all of our like gear to jump in with. I still have some of that gear <laughs> um, from Patagonia to like we could wear because we're it's in the middle of winter. Did I say that in British Columbia? Sounds cold. Yeah, it's supposed to, Yeah, it was cold. So we got gear donated and, you know. So um, what would you say to a hunter in B.C. who makes the argument that... Um, through the hunting dollars to get a caribou tag or, mm -hmm. or one of these these animal mm -hmm. tags, um, that is going to fund conservation. And by by reducing the wolf population, uh, it's keeping the species mm -hmm. more diverse species more imbalanced. What would you say to that argument? Well, they're still controlling wolf populations up there through other means, and I think that. Um the, at the time, they wanted to reduce the population by a huge amount, and they were basically wiping them out from helicopters and just whole packs. And so it wasn't necessarily this kind of scientifically based control program. It was more this kind of partial eradication program. Right. And so it's you been make many it, years. So it's it's different than the work that say a group like Island Conservation Correct. would do. Okay. And this, you know, and wolves are natural up there. There's a natural balance. And it's true that sometimes you you know, if humans are also taking out some of those as well, you can offset the balance. But this was a um, something kind of outside of that from what we determined and what we found out what Paul was working on, it was sort of this special interest people up there that wanted to greatly reduce the wolf population. And, um, for better hunting trips. Well, and they were bringing in these other species like non-native species to like have these hunting groups. When we went up there, we had uh, chartered a plane so we could jump from there. We could see like, you know, in the middle of nowhere, these corrals that they were using to like, they're flying in these non-native game and they would have little hunting trips. And so what kind? I don't remember. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I just remember like in my head, I can remember seeing these like corrals with like the strip and these corrals up there, like in right. the middle of everything. Do you think that there is any argument? To, I don't know the the actual numbers of money raised um, in B.C. through mm -hmm. hunting tags. But I know mm -hmm. that in the U.S. it's, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And you know, there are organizations like Ducks Unlimited that. Yep. Um, will use the money from hunting to to fund wetlands and that kind of thing. Do you yeah. think that there is an argument that enough money would be raised from hunting that even flying in non-native species would um, overall create more conservation? Well, I think it will. So for me, it was a different thing. I think that they, like my remembering, this has been a long time. Sure is that these uh, other species were more prone to predation by wolves. And so the, you know, at, they wanted to get rid of over 50% of the wolf population up there. So huge numbers, I mean, was sort of what they were going for. And they were doing it from helicopters mm -hmm. by baiting them onto lakes in the middle of winter. And so there wasn't, my recollection, solid scientific data to support this program. 
in terms of conserving, you know, or keeping the balance or any of those things. Right. It was sort of being done kind of way up outside of the general population of British Columbia for some special kind of groups up there. And so Paul's idea, you know, was to sort of have this sensational, which he has, this sensationalistic event, which was us skydiving in to sort of disrupt the kill. Did it work? It did. So we skydived in. We saw, um, we did the helicopter, sorry, the plane spotting. And we saw a bunch of wolves feeding on a carcass on a lake. And so we were worried that they were baited and that they were going to be shot with a helicopter. And so we skydived in. But at the time, the Minister of Environment for British Columbia, um, first of all, didn't like the fact that we were up there. Some, you know, California women skydiving in. But he, they decided to call off the hunt while we were there. They didn't want, like, a bunch of stuff going on. So we jumped in, and the hunt was postponed. And then this is another thing. So in the meantime, we uh, had a lawsuit with the Western Canadian Wilderness Committee that basically put forth this lawsuit to stop the hunt in, um, in court. And this was the first time that an environmental group achieved standing in courts in British Columbia, because before that they were, there was an argument that you couldn't achieve standing unless you had a economic interest. But because Paul George, who was the head of the Western Canadian wilderness committee, we used to call it WC squared, (laughs) um, was a scientist, had a degree, they it was that so my remembering was that was one of the reasons that they were able to achieve standing and so the lawsuit went through and so when the lawsuit was then got through and pending they had to stall basically that put the hunt on hold and um and we won the case in court wow because the supreme court uh ruled that the government was basically using their authority illegally they didn't have the authority to have non-government officials up there gunning wolves down from helicopters, which was what was happening. Wow. And, um, and there was tons of protests and demonstrations, and it had all this, you know, basically attention in British Columbia, like in Vancouver, because these people didn't know what was happening. And to me, that was powerful for a couple of ways. One was that I learned for this long, kind of longer-term solution, you needed to you know, maybe go beyond just the action of jumping in. Although they have now, I think, reinstated some arrow wolf killing in British Columbia since like just in the last couple of years. But for a long time, um, and I think that they had to change stuff. So that you needed to do multiple pieces. And the other thing was, you know, having, um, being recognized as uh, somebody with, as an expert or with knowledge or scientist or somebody, you know, was actually a, um, important, I guess. And cause at the time I was thinking, am I going to go back to school? Am I going to not go back to school? Yeah. Where does this have a role? And like clearly yeah, you care I, about having an impact. Yeah. So to, so I went back and finished my undergraduate degree. That's great. Yeah. To, to feel like you're making a difference through science. Yeah. I love, I love talking with, uh, scientists because there's some of the few people who who seem to have a sober view of things and i think that you do have a well-balanced uh view of of conservation and how to to get it done it's it's fun to to talk with you like you you clearly care um but you come at it from a a data-based argument which i think is important to get to if you want to be right yeah, I think we don't have, uh, yeah, it comes back to, again, enough time and enough resources to, you need to try to get it right. And to get it right, you need 
you need data. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. Uh, where well, can people you. find out uh, about your work more? Where can people get involved? What do you need? Yeah. So um, people can, I have a website affiliated with the university and they can email me. Um, I can put my email on your podcast, yep. I guess. Um, and if they I'll want, put it in the description below. Okay, yeah. great. And if they want to um, support any of this research, my research on lead poisoning in eagles or condors or the plastic work, they can um, support the work through uh, uh, an account or fund I have through the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I can put that link on your website as well. Absolutely. And feel free to ask me any questions. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song by Nate Maingard called This Cat's Got Time. I will also link to Mira's work in the description below. Once again, this is an ad-free podcast, so I rely on listeners like you to keep that way. Thank you so much to everyone who donates your hard-earned money to keep this podcast going. Uh, If you can spare even just the equivalent of a cup of coffee every month, click the link below this episode where I wrote, buy me a cup of coffee on Patreon. You can also go to my website, kyle.surf, to donate. Uh, Finally, I am an Amazon affiliate, so if you buy shit on Amazon, please go to my website, kyle.surf slash book club and click the Amazon link. It doesn't cost you anything. And then anything that you buy on Amazon, anything at all, uh, by using that link, I get a small percentage of at no cost to you. So if you buy stuff on Amazon, please use that link, bookmark it, and it's an easy way to support the show for free. Uh, If you don't want to do any of that, just keep listening, share the show with friends. Um, I don't advertise on this show, so the only way other new people find out about it is through listeners like you. Um, with that, I hope to see you all at the Motherfucker Awards. You can go to themotherfuckerawards.com. Uh, tickets are still available. And I'll see you soon. Hope you have a great day, and I hope that you get out in the water this week, because winter has finally arrived. Fascination for material medication by our education. Well, it's a fucked up situation. Yes, it's an awkward situation. But let's not argue pedantics about who is gonna win. Cause I'm not entering your races. So I don't think that's relevant And all I need's a patch of sunlight From which to watch the world run by You tell me life, it is a rat race Well, I'm the rat, so I've got time Yes, I'm the rat, so I've got time This cat's got time This cat's got time
flickering candlelight It's all that holds at bay the night And it keeps away the beast But why'd you keep away the beast? Why are you afraid of the beast? And let's not argue pedantics About who is gonna win I'm not entering your races So I don't think that's relevant And all I need's a patch of sunlight From which to watch the world run by You tell me life, it is a rat race Well, I'm the rat, so I've got time Yes, I'm the rat, so I've got time This cat's got time cat's got time This cat's got time This cat's got time